It's Friday, October 6th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Oil and gas regulators from across North America gathered this week in Pittsburgh to learn from one another and plan for the future. The Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission holds its annual conference at a time when the industry and the agencies that govern it are increasingly organized across state lines and international boundaries. You know, oil and gas is spreading throughout the world to areas where it had not taken place. And some of these countries are actually putting together regulatory regimes and training people to do these same jobs that we've established in the U.S. for a long time, we think there's an opportunity to actually then go and talk to some of these other foreign governments and, and, and their regulatory communities and do some training as well. We'll drop in on the IOGCC conference ahead on this week's show. First, more than three months after the deadline to pass a state budget, the process is finally complete. Kind of. After lawmakers failed to reach agreement on a revenue package earlier this week, Governor Tom Wolf announced Wednesday that he would act on his own to pay the bills, essentially by borrowing against future revenues from wine and liquor sales. The General Assembly has authorized spending of money, and I am now, by default, the one who has to manage whatever revenues come in with what we have in place uh, to make sure that we end up with a balanced budget. And what I'm saying here is I am committed to doing that. That announcement effectively ended the budget proceedings one quarter of the way into the new fiscal year, but also left a number of key decisions unresolved and critical legislative actions unfinished. It also means controversial fund transfers and riders pertaining to DEP permitting actions are now off the table. That's good news for the environment, although on balance, there's not a lot to celebrate. Former DEP Secretary David Hess has been keeping a close watch on this week's events in the state capitol and joins us now to explain the outcome. David, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here. So what just happened? Well, we have a budget. For better or for worse, we have a budget. It doesn't have any additional revenue. There's no severance tax, natural gas severance tax in, but we have a, a budget by default, as I like to call it, because of a series of failures to pass any sort of revenue proposal in the House. We do have a budget, and you know the governor has now stepped in and said he will take a series of actions, including floating a $1.2 billion bond, probably putting additional funds in budgetary reserve, all to keep within the current revenues that the state has. And in addition, at least as, as of this moment, state-related universities like Pitt, Penn State, Temple, Lincoln University, and the vet school at Penn will not be funded, totaling about $650 million. So there are ramifications to all that. The fact that none of the budget-related bills were passed either, particularly the fiscal code bill, is going to cause, I think, some tremendous problems as we move forward. But we do have a budget, and that budget assumes that certain things, you know, certain funds, for example, were going to be transferred here or there. And that, uh, because they didn't pass the fiscal code bill, those kinds of things aren't going to happen. To frame this in terms of the conversation we've been having through the summer and, and leading into the fall, we've been deeply concerned about these environmental riders. We've been concerned about fund transfers. If there is an upside to any of this, I, is it fair to say that none of these things happened or are likely to happen in the immediate future? Are we like the house was on fire, but 
least we're not pouring gasoline on it, or are we just pouring the gasoline in another location, if that metaphor isn't too tortured? Well, I'm not sure what metaphor you used for this, because I think it demands probably a new one, because yeah. we're just in uncharted territory here. The good news is none of those nasty more than a dozen riders have so far passed. The bad news is because they didn't really finish sort of the mechanical stuff like the fiscal code bill, there's a question about whether DCNR will be fully funded because some language in the fiscal code bill allows a transfer from the oil and gas lease fund to support state park and forestry operations. The $2 per ton recycling fee was not reauthorized. And DEP has already shut down new applications for local collection implementation grants. And just a week ago, it shut down accepting new applications for household hazardous waste collection and education events. So for all intents and purposes, as we talk, the recycling program is all but shut down because the General Assembly did not do their work. So there, there are a lot of practical ramifications to them really not completing their work, although we have a budget. One thing that happened kind of in the end stages of this process that for a minute there looked like it might have been part of a, a mechanism for, for some sort of revenue solution to fund the budget that was passed in the summer, and that is a, a severance tax on oil and gas production in Pennsylvania, something that's you know come up many times before, obviously, and has not gone anywhere, and that apparently is still the case. Can you explain how that vote broke down and what, if anything, it signifies? Yeah, sort of as a surprise, House Democrats made a motion to... Uh, bring the severance tax bill out of the House Environmental Committee. And there was lots of debate over that. But in the end, the motion failed, um, 115 to, to 83. So that's sort of, at this point, the high watermark for, I think, the severance tax uh, issue in the House. So, you know, for those people who might have been supporting that, that was certainly a disappointment, but that was only one step in a long process they would have had to take to actually get a vote on an actual bill. But uh, that was uh, sort of discouraging, again, for those people who supported the severance tax. Is this an, one of those situations where maybe the sphere of possibility has been expanded or moved a little bit, where they got a little bit farther this time, and maybe next time they'll get a little bit farther down the road? Or is that... Uh wishful thinking on the part of those who want the severance tax. Well, it, it could be, Josh, but the severance tax is really not proposed to really benefit the environment anyway, or environmental right. projects. So, you know, we'll have to see where that issue goes. The bigger issue, as I said, was the practical fallout from the House and Senate not completing uh, work on things like the fiscal code, you know, cutting, growing greener, the hazard sites cleanup fund, you know, and, and the additional controls on whether DEP can fill staff uh, positions. So we'll have to see how that all shakes out over the next uh, couple weeks, whether any any additional action is uh, possible by the General Assembly. So as we look around for something to point to as a sign of, of progress or some box that was checked, at least, there was some forward motion on a pipeline safety bill. Can you tell us what happened and what may happen next on, on that piece of legislation? Yeah, the House Consumer Affairs Committee reported out Senator uh, Lisa Baker's bill, Senate Bill 242, to add um, 
you know, thousands of miles of unconventional and uh, larger conventional natural gas gathering lines to the PA1 call system. That's the safety program that requires people to call before they dig. Senator Baker had pointed out that there's an estimated 100,000 miles of unmapped natural gas lines in Pennsylvania that cause you know thousands of incidents or a good percentage of those incidents all across the state. So that was a huge step. Now it goes to the full house and hopefully they will take action on that, final action on that before the end of this year because the program itself is due to expire. Mr. Secretary, thanks again for your insights. I look forward to talking with you in the near future about something other than the state budget process. Well, hopefully that'll be true because, you know, there's a lot of good work going on out there and uh, we should also keep that in mind, even if at times Harrisburg doesn't work. And keep following PA Environment Daily, compiled by David Hess, for more environmental and policy news from across Pennsylvania as we move into the next stage of the legislative calendar. There's much more on the agenda for this fall, and we'll keep you posted. Once a year, the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission brings together state and federal officials with representatives from both industry and the environmental community to discuss the various challenges they each face in different parts of the country. Pennsylvania Environmental Council was among the sponsors for this year's gathering held on the banks of the Monongahela River in Pittsburgh. I sat in on a few of the sessions and pulled aside some of the participants to get their views. And here's a sample. Scott Anderson, I'm the uh, Senior Policy Director for Environmental Defense Fund. I've been coming to IOGCC meetings since the early 1980s and Environmental Defense Fund has been a sponsor of these meetings for a few years. I was pleased to see that uh, Pennsylvania Environmental Council has uh, become a sponsor for the first time because it's really critical for environmental protection uh, that state regulators um, learn from each other about what the issues are and what the emerging controversies and problems are so that they can help each other do a better job of regulating. So basically this meeting um, has been all about that it's hard to summarize exactly what all the topics have been but the general theme is regulators learning from each other about how to do a better job at overseeing uh, oil and gas activities and industry also represented yes uh, so there have been not quite as many industry people at this particular meeting as i've seen at a number of meetings in the past, but uh, certainly there's plenty of industry representation here and more uh, than there is from the environmental side. How would you characterize the relationship right now between industry and, and regulators and, and third parties? Yeah, so the regulators are, are kind of caught in the middle. Um, they've, they've uh, of course, got uh, deep and long-standing relationships with industry for understandable reasons. And in uh, most of the states, the, the regulators have kind of a dual function of they're being looked to by their legislatures, both to moderate environmental impacts, but also to help the industry you know, grow and, and prosper. So that does create some uh, challenges, to put it mildly, and sometimes out-and-out out conflicts you know, for the, the regulators. And they get tugged in multiple directions. Talking about Pennsylvania as the setting for this, has there been any focus on the regulatory environment in Pennsylvania, oil and gas development here? Has that has this uh, setting and this backdrop provided any useful context or, or texture to the proceedings? Yeah, so there there have been multiple 
shows going on here, and, and um, I've not been in every session. The, the sessions I've attended myself have been pitched at a more general level, like things like what can be done to accelerate the uh, development and, and adoption of new technologies, for example, is something of general interest, not, not particular to, us, to, to, any, to any given state. What has struck you about the new technology that we've been hearing about? Well, this industry is has always been a high-tech industry. It's it was one of the industries that first adopted uh, advanced computing technology, for example, and, and they handle massive amounts of data in this industry, which of course is a big topic right now. But the whole boom in Pennsylvania uh, is a result of the confluence of two different technologies. One is hydraulic fracturing, of course, uh, but also horizontal drilling, um, both of which are technologies that had existed for decades, but only um, in the uh, 1990s and then even more so in, here, here in this century have those two technologies been merged together, and that's what unleashed the shale um, developments. So, it's, so technology has always been driving this industry, continues to. Whenever you get new technologies or new practices, you get new risks. And uh, it's, it's uh, extremely important for both industry and regulators, and for that matter, environmental representatives, to keep up with these changes in technologies because unless you identify the risk, the newly emerging risks, as well as the newly emerging needs for risk controls, the technology will get out of hand and, and, and have unintended consequences. Is there anything in particular you'd like to see the next conference focus on? What, what still needs to be addressed? Well, these issues, like the one I just mentioned, don't ever go away. So the, the, the technology, there's, there's really no such thing as a um, single set of rules or a single set of risk controls that will um, be sufficient permanently because things change too much. The, the technologies change, the risks change, our understanding of the risk changes, uh, the risk control options change. Uh, our understanding of the relative importance of dealing with different problems changes. So it's sort of an eternal task of, of keeping up. So just getting better at what they do is uh, what I would like to see them do you know, next conference and the conference after that, etc. Well, Scott, thanks for talking with me. Have a safe trip back home. Okay, thanks. My name is Brad Tomer. I'm the Vice President of Operations for Avatar Systems, a GE Venture. We're focused on end-to-end inspections as a service to do industrial inspections uh, from everything from oil and gas facilities all the way through power plants or uh, pipelines or anything like that. We use a host of robotics from flying drones to crawling robots to subsea autonomous underwater vehicles to do a variety of inspections uh, across the landscape of uh, all types of industrial uh, inspections. Tell me more about the, the crawling robots. Can you describe what they look like, uh, how they move around, and, and what they do? We have a whole variety of uh, uh, crawling robots. Uh, some are uh, uh, tethered and some are untethered. We have an, an untethered one that uh, looks like a snake. Um, it can crawl upside of pipes and things like uh, It can crawl up the side of uh, tanks, crawl along pipes. Uh, has, it's outfitted with uh, ultrasonic testing capabilities so it can measure the wall thickness of metals and things like that. Uh, we have another uh, tethered crawler that GE uh, Inspection Robotics makes 
that is uh, more of a rectangular shape, but it has uh, magnetic wheels on it, and it uh, it'll follow a uh, a weld and inspect the weld autonomously. It'll follow that weld. It'll follow a line basically, but the weld is like a line, so it'll follow that all the way around the tank. On the same platform, we have a robot that'll clean an area to inspect before it inspects. So it has a, a cleaning arm that it will inspect. Again, it's tethered. Uh, for remote uh, visual inspections, or we can actually do ultrasonic testing or pulse steady current testing on that one also. This will be for applications where uh, like safety is a concern in particular. What, why would you use a, a crawling robot and not another kind? There's several reasons. One, one is cost. Uh, for example, if you're, if you're inspecting a tank, even if you're inside the tank and inspecting an ins- internal part of a tank, uh, generally speaking, you have to put scaffolding up. Mm-hmm or uh, you have to do ropes teams where people can hang off the side of the tank. Very expensive, very time consuming. With these crawlers, we can do the uh, tank, we can do uh, more, cover more of it in less time, and we don't have to put people in harm's way. And you've also been doing a lot with aerial drones. I gather that the quadcopters are handy but have some limitations, and you've moved beyond that in some ways too? Well, we're doing a lot with rotocopters right now. Uh, we do a lot with well pads. Uh, we inspect for uh, uh, methane leaks. We we do a l- other. We do volumetric inspections. We do change detection inspections with uh, our, uh, with uh, what we call RGB, which is red, green, blue, uh, high definition cameras. We also use uh, infrared cameras to inspect a lot of things. You can t- tell a lot about a facility with by its heat signature, and we use. Uh, uh, we have LIDAR systems that we use, which is uh, light detecting and ranging systems. Um, so we do that with rotocopters. Uh, we are moving beyond uh, rotocopters to try to do uh, beyond visual line of sight. So we're looking at a, a, a hybrid of a fixed wing and a, uh, and a rotocopter that would give us vertical takeoff and landing uh, capabilities, but the efficiency of a, of a long-range uh, fixed wing flight. And with that, we'd be looking at more... Uh, uh, assets, inspecting assets such as pipelines or uh, electric transmission lines or things like that, or even well pads, depends on what we're looking at and how, how far we want to go. And so you're a fairly a new entity as you, you know, in your talk, you, you talked about um, how long you've been around, which is about a year, I think. What stage of development are these technologies at? Are they, are they in the field now? Or are they still kind of in, in the lab? Our rotocopter uh, offerings are in the field. We're actually using them now and getting results. Uh, and we offer those commercially as a as a commercial offering. The uh, the beyond visual line of sight is in development. I mean the uh, the birds the uh, the drones exist. It's a matter of uh, uh, the development piece is developing the sensors and the payloads that go on those drones, and also the capability to fly beyond visual line of sight, uh, which is controlled by the FAA. And we're looking for a 2210 exemption to be able to fly beyond visual line of sight which comes with a host of, of uh, requirements so that you are uh, able to, you have redundant systems in case your, uh, system, one of your navigation systems goes down, you ha- you're able to navigate with a different system. You ha- so you can need to communicate with the bird, you need to be able to sense and avoid other aircraft. Just to name a couple, there's a whole host of things you have to do to be able to fly beyond visual line of sight uh, to ensure that you don't uh, bring any harm or danger to any, pe- uh, any people or property. And so obviously, you're you're in the middle of this very complicated web of regulatory agencies and different you know state and federal requirements. Could you talk a little bit about how your business is shaped or directed by what states in particular, but also EPA, you know, is saying operators need what meets the requirements? 
So the EPA uh, regulates the methane emissions in, in volatile organic compounds uh, upstream oil and gas facilities, and, and the states follow suit and have their own regulations. So there's a, a myriad of uh, regulations that you have to follow and, and the uh, intervals between inspections and things like that. Department of Transportation regulates uh, pipeline leaks through, for safety and things like that. And the states, again, for intrastate pipelines, they uh, regulate the intrastate pipelines, and there's a myriad of uh, regulations for that also. When it comes down to uh, measuring those leaks, however, there's very much, there's a lot of similarities. While this, the, uh, the duration or the sequence, the time sequence between them or, or whatever can be much different between state to state, the measurement piece of it is very similar. You have uh, two options under EPA, which is Method 21, which is a survey that you walk around, you know, and take actual samples, and then you have the optical gas imaging uh, system that you can use. The difficulty is when you want to go outside, a step outside those bounds, uh, you need to get uh, permission to use an alternative means. And that's where, we, you know, uh, companies can use a little help in making sure that we're developing technologies that will be approved by the EPA and others to be uh, certified to, uh, to do the measurements. What's your assessment generally of the technology? Is it moving faster lately? Are there big challenges still to be met? What, what's coming next for you? I think the technology, if you look at the whole system of inspections, taking a human out of the dull, dirty, dangerous work of collecting data, which yields you a lot more data and a lot more consistent data. But processing that data is very uh, important also. So you want to take the human out of processing the data. So uh, deep learning and, and uh, algorithms and things like that to take the actual human out of the inspection piece of it is uh, very important also for consistency and, and things like that. And then having a platform where you can report that data automatically without having to write uh, big reports and things like that is, is another piece. So our, our platform actually does that, that entire thing. We're trying to, uh, to disrupt on all three of those levels. We, we, we have a platform to collect the data at autonomously with uh, robotics. Uh, we have a platform to interpret the data autonomously with deep learning and, and uh, a lot of analytics built into the system. And then we have a, a system to actually develop the reports and, uh, automatically and then do workflow, initiate work orders and things like that to go fix something. You also talked about uh, artificial intelligence. That's going to play a big role. Yeah, artificial intelligence is really uh, something that's going to, uh, I believe, change the world, not only for what we're doing, but in a lot of areas. You know, machine learning's been around for a long time, but historically it was very uh, labor-intensive, I should say, or programming-intensive. With this deep learning systems where the machine actually learns on its own, it's, it's really exponential in, in terms of its rate of advancement. So I think within the next five years you're going to see a rate of advancement like you've never seen before and then it's just going to go up from there. Well Brad, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. My name is Larry Harlan and I'm with uh, TopCore which is a training program sponsored by the University of Texas, uh, Penn State University and the Colorado School of Mines. TopCore was put together about 2012 at the end of the year by members from the industry. Um, it was ExxonMobil and General Electric who were combining to think through the fact that with the technology that was evolving in states where traditionally you've not had much oil and gas production and even in oil producing states, the technology was evolving 
evolving so quickly and the applications taking place that the regulatory community, frankly, was having a hard time keeping up with the knowledge of what was going on. We found that a lot of the states were moving new regulators into oil and gas and, and turnover was such that there was a, a great need to actually find a way of training the state regulators that were actually out there representing the public and, and representing the public trust on making sure that the industry was in fact doing what they needed to do. And so the work was uh, identified as a need. Uh, the three universities were approached to say, look, we need to find a way that industry can help this happen, but it needs to be done in an unbiased and in a, in a fact-based way. And so that we went to three schools that were obviously well experienced in petroleum geology, petroleum engineering, uh, but were geographically diverse, covering different parts of the country. So Penn State, Colorado School of Mines, and University of Texas jumped at the chance and said, great, we'd be happy to do this. So they began by actually going to the regulatory agencies and saying, tell us about the training you do. What, what do you do for your people? Where, uh, how often is it done? That sort of thing. And how, how often would you send your people to training so that they could design something that would you know, be beneficial Official to the regulators themselves. So they came up after a couple of years, they took that initial seed money and came up with the program that includes both an online component where the regulators prepare to go to then workshops that are held at the various universities specializing in different components. So you've got a, a piece that's directly focused on geology and petroleum engineering. Uh, and, and technology advancement. You have a piece on uh, environmental management, and then there's a third component that's on evolving issues and communications. You know, what are the hot button issues in the, in the industry, and how do you, as a regulatory community and an industry, how do you communicate on those issues? And so they developed it. Um, they've now been two years into actually uh, implementing the training, and so each one of the universities has now hosted two workshops. And so total, we've now trained over 200 state, uh, state, a couple of federal, and then also four provinces in Canada have also sent regulators. So over 200 have actually now been trained. And so the feedback from the regulatory community has been overwhelmingly positive for two reasons. One, the, the, the feedback has been that the material is very good, it's very important. Uh, it gives them a chance to interface with regulators from other states and from other geologic re geographic regions that do things differently, different types of operational challenges. Um, the feedback on the training itself has been very good. And then the other component is part of the model is that the money that the universities have to put this on, it provides the training absolutely for free. So the states, many of which are you know, strapped for cash, like many, many institutes are, um, are able to send these regulators to these workshops for no charge. So the funding at the universities covers uh, the travel, the housing, the, the workshops, the facilities, all of that. So it's absolutely been well received. And where we are now, uh, we've had great participation from uh, a number of companies, ExxonMobil, General Electric, uh, the Environmental Defense Fund has been instrumental and has been very helpful. Mitchell Foundation down in Texas has been uh, contributing to that. And our newest contributor is Chevron Corporation. So you mentioned the, the different challenges that different regions face. How do, you, uh, how do you tailor the program for each of those locations? How does the industry and the relationship with the regulators look different from one part of the country to another? Yeah, no great question. I think, I think kind of some of the introductory work on petroleum geology and technology, the engineering part, um, that is pretty basic at the beginning. But as they, since we hold these workshops in various areas, they're actually able to go out into the field. Uh, we've had real luck with industry hosting and, and the regulatory agencies hosting workshops out in the field. So, uh, if, for example, in, down in Austin uh, back in May, 
the group there had a chance to go down and actually visit a saltwater disposal facility on where the you know the disposal water is, is done away with. That same day, they drove down south of San Antonio and actually went out onto a site where a well was being fracked uh, and got a full tour of how that work was being done. So I think. There's kind of the base knowledge that goes out, but it's since they hold them in various places, they can actually go into the field and see what happens in the field in those areas where they're actually working. Because it varies. Geology is different. Uh, requirements somewhat vary from state to state, and they're actually able to go put boots on the ground and take a look at it. So talking about the, the feedback you've been getting for this initial kind of phase, what are people learning that's surprising to them or particularly valuable? Well, I think from a core standpoint, particularly for the new regulators that are actually coming into the industry working for the regulatory agencies. Some of them come in with, with frankly, very little oil and gas experience. And so some of them, the learning curve is straight high. I mean, they're, they're being asked to go out into the field. And, and some states have training and some, some at varying degree. But all of the states have said, yeah, the training is very valuable for a brand new regulator. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily a young person. You know, some of the states that have got oil and gas in a growing kind of industry, people are moving over from the mining industry or from the water uh, regulatory side. And so learning about oil and gas from its basic, you know, grassroots up is something that's really in demand. But we have people that have been doing it for years who come out and use it as a refresher. And so they, the feedback's been good from kind of the new and from the experienced uh, regulatory community. And what are you doing with the communications piece you mentioned? Well, the communications piece is, is part of the workshop, and so they look at emerging issues, uh, part of that. And so it's looking at things like the seismicity questions around fracking. You know, what are, what are the facts about, you know, earthquakes and saltwater disposal, those sorts of things. So as an example, the, the last workshop we had people come in from Oklahoma and from uh, the um, Bureau of Economic Geology and actually communicate to them what's the latest in the studies that are still ongoing. Some of it's you know, new material that hasn't been completed, but here's what we're learning as we go. And again, this is this is not it's it's not being at all filtered by the industry. It is funded, but the, the work is actually being done by different groups. But then their communication piece, it was interesting. So we had a professor from the University of Texas who was not an oil and gas expert, but was a communications expert and came in and talked to the regulators about how do, how's the best way to have a working relationship with people that maybe you're having to deliver news that they might not want to hear, and vice versa? How do you work through those issues? How do you document your points so that you can not only just say, here's my opinion, but here's my facts? And so it was, it was kind of little communications 101 to say, okay, this is a good way to breach what could be difficult conversations you know, when you have to have them. It's pretty educational. And what's next? Well, next is moving on into 2018 and preparing for our workshops next year. Uh, we hope to be doing our next workshop at Colorado School of Mines probably in the late fall or early, or, or late spring or early summer. Uh, the next one will then probably be at uh, Penn State uh, at the end of the summer or early fall, and then probably at the University of Texas probably during, you know, just before the, like during the, the winter break. And so we're looking to, to firm up our funding for that. So as we look forward, we think, well, how much more work is to be done? And our kind of our polling of looking to different people, we think there's probably another thousand regulators out there that need to be trained. We've also gotten feedback from industry that, you know, this could be something that the, the, that the federal agencies would want to see, you know, the, the BLM, the, uh, the EPA, Department of Energy, or could we put together a component that would focus in on offshore, you know, the offshore regulatory community, which could be state and or federal waters. So we think there's kind of an opportunity to do um, a broader reach to different regula regulators. 
And we've even had kind of looking down the road, we're going to walk before we run, but, you know, oil and gas is spreading throughout the world to areas where it had not taken place. And some of these countries are actually putting together regulatory regimes and training people to do these same jobs that we've established in the U.S. for a long time. We think there's an opportunity to actually then go and talk to some of these other foreign governments and, and, and their regulatory communities and do some training as well. So we think we're going to be around for a while. Well, good luck. Thanks for talking with me. Sure. Happy to do it. Just a few of the voices from this year's annual conference of the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission held Sunday through Tuesday in Pittsburgh. And that's Pennsylvania Legacies for another week. We'll have a fresh episode next Friday, so join us then. In the meantime, check out the PEC website at PECPA.org, PECPA.org. We tweet at PECPA, and we're on Facebook, too. Check us out there. Send us an email to legacies at PECPA.org. Until next week, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.